Give it up for Jay if you want to. I felt like you did a great job. Hey, real talk. Real talk real quick. You know, Debbie and I were talking this morning about just where we are at as a community and where we're going as a community. And um, if there is one bright spot that we want to be like redundantly acknowledging, it's Jay. Jay is doing amazing work with our kids. Jay is like, he's creating new things. He's taking on new ventures. He's doing beautiful work. And I know a lot of that with the kids, it's out of sight, out of mind. So if you don't have kids in that particular program, it's easy to forget. I get it. I do have kids and I still forget it. <laughs> That's cards on the table. But Jay is doing amazing work. And I, um, you know, every time we have him come forth with a new venture, a new idea, a new uh, uh, plan in place, this guy's a gift. And I don't know if we're actually fully aware of that, but he really is a gift. All right, my name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the leaders here at the table, MPLS. Thank you for joining us on our Wednesday night worship service. We're trying this new thing. I was, uh, I golfed 18 holes with one of our church members this afternoon. And he said like, how dare you? Well, he didn't say it like that, but the tone, the tone certainly looks, it suggested that. How dare you shift church from Sunday to Wednesday? And I get the beef that was like embedded in that tone. But what we're trying to do is say, Sunday night church is not ideal for anybody as is, right? Just me, Lori, you too, thank you. But like we're trying to figure out, we can either like keep on keeping it on and like pay no attention to the fact that there are some battles that you need to overcome to participate in our Sunday service as is. And so let's try mixing things up. Let's try something new. Let's like try to expand ourselves in different kinds of ways with different kinds of flavors and see how it all shakes out. And so that's why we're here tonight. And we appreciate you participating. We appreciate you showing up for the pizza. Uh, thank you for being here. Number one thing, this is the part in the, the worship service where we, we do like a sermon of sorts which I told Gino last night, Gino, you're laughing right now. I told Gino, I'm like, I'm so freaking sick of sermons in general. <laughs> I mean, just the sense of like, where it's like all this performative nature where I need to show up and go like, here's what Galatians 3 says to you and this. And it's like, okay, I could do that if you want me to do that, but I'm not really vibing with that at all. And so the truth of the matter is this is space. If you hear nothing else, if you walk away from the service with nothing else, at least walk away with this. We want you to know from us to you who you are right now, as is. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your character, your story, your essence, your failures, your flaws, your trophies, your wins, your losses, all of it. That's a lot more important than what you do to try to like gain some kind of acceptance, belonging or otherwise. I don't care about anything else actually. Like the core line of the gospel is the announcement to you to like, do you know who you actually are? Do you want to live up to who you actually are? And so we get together in this space, typically on Sunday nights, but right now it's a Wednesday night, just to remind each other to look one another in the eyes and go like, holy crap, Maggie, you are the glory of God incarnate. John, not so much, but Maggie though is, <laughs> sorry, it got too deep. I, this is an issue I would deal with all the time. 
Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Right now, we are in a summer series called Dancing in the Darkness. We're basing it off of Dr. Reverend Otis Moss III's book, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. The title of the chapter that I was tasked to take on tonight was called Pardon My Dust. He said our, but it typically isn't my. Pardon my dust. Here's the, the, the line of logic that he took. He said he was walking by an apartment building one day. He didn't say it, but like this is what he was talking about. And he said, typically when there's like construction projects, Oslo, is like as a project is being built, as a new apartment is coming to stand, there are signs often posted on the outside of it saying, hey, pardon our dust. We started something new, not there yet. Along the way, as you walk past us, you might catch a little dust along the way. We are all works in progress, is where Dr. Reverend Otis Moss III was trying to get us to, to understand. We are all like casting off dust. Not all aware of it, though. I mean, I can tell you, and I, I don't want to base this sermon on me at all, but I can tell you that as, as somebody who's in recovery, one of the baseline truths that we come to understand in AA in movements of this sort is like, yeah, you're not the finished product of who God intended you to be. Pardon my dust. I'm a work in progress. Pardon my dust. I started out in one particular direction, not quite there yet. Pardon my dust as I put the beams in place and make the moves that I need to make move happen. Pardon my dust. I don't want to make it about me, though, because I don't know a lot about construction. <laughs> Actually, true story. I once put on a job resume that I, I had a, a history in construction, and that's only because I went to Build-A-Bear one afternoon. <laughs> like, I mean, like, should I be pressed further? Mark, is that a bad job move? No, it's true. Did I construct something? Absolutely, I did. But I also don't have all the answers. I actually have more questions than that. Matter of fact, can I pose one to you right now? It has nothing to do with the shamanic direction I want to take us right. But it just hit me this morning when I was thinking about construction in general. <laughs> I shouldn't say this out loud. Have you actually ever seen a crane being put into place? Okay, John, you ruined it for me because I honestly have all I've ever seen is like you wake up one morning and the crane is there. That's been a question that's been nagging at me. It's been playing in the background music. It's not like for like forefront. Like it's not messing with me always. But when I actually sat down and thought about construction, part of my dust, I've never seen the crane being put into place. John, you have. I'm grateful for you. Let's go to Luke 15. Patty, can you put the text on the screen? I want to look at this text as we talk about pardoning my dust, the nature of grace. This is Jesus. Jesus is talking to a, a group of Pharisees who have come in. They're upset with him. And instead of giving a direct response, instead of immediately turning and going about how do we cancel these folk, he tells a story. Matter of fact, he tells three. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he, Jesus, he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, 
does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, celebrating, throwing down. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, rejoice with me. For that sheep that had gone missing, that sheep that was lost is found. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. One story was not enough for Jesus. He carries on and he says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner, somebody who, who went after one particular direction and missed. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's all building here. We get to a climax here. Jesus, the Nazarene, son of God. The one that the church, our church, all churches are built off of. He then leads to this point right here and he says, there was a guy. This guy, he had two boys. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. What, what that is translated though, to be perfectly clear is like, dad, can I take what eventually be mine when you're dead, Dad, can we play it out like you're dead already? I don't want to be here. I don't want to see you. I don't want to be involved in this. Dad, can we play it out? Can I spend the rest of my story as if you've already died? Can I get that inheritance now? Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. <laughs> Anybody else been in the far country? Yeah. He took a journey into the far country and there he squandered his property into reckless living. We don't get specifics, but pastors will let you know some specifics. Pastors were filling that blank with like, he was messing around with prostitutes. He was gambling on the corners. He was doing this and he was doing that. We don't actually know what he was up to. All we know is that he said to his dad, I want to live as if you were dead. I want to take what you would have for me. I want to run to the far country and then comes, I don't know. I'm going to go for it though. I'm out. When this boy had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed all the pigs and he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, one of my favorite lines in all of the gospels, when he came to himself, there was no like divine intervention in his story. 
eventually he kind of just woke up. Like I'm, I'm in the mess. <laughs> I wish I was in an AA group right now because if I said that line, like we would look around and go like, yeah. There was nobody that picked us up and made us go like, yeah, now God, God has brought you. It's like you, you come to yourself eventually. Everywhere you go, there you are. You see yourself eventually. You recognize that your story has settled far short of where you intended once for it to go. When he came to himself, when he arrived in himself, when he became aware of himself, where he was, what he was doing, what the why behind it all was, he said, you know, how many of my father's hired servants had more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Mind you, this is all Jesus' storytelling right here. Don't lose sight of like disgruntled Pharisees standing in the doorway going, what is this guy doing with these bums over here? This is all Jesus like in the moment going, can I tell you another story? Started with the sheep, went to the coin. Now I'm gonna go to the sun and I'm gonna give you like, like dialogue here too. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned. This is the script that we've all carried in our pockets at different points in our history. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Don't call me your son. Don't call me your son. If you call me your son, I'm going to be aware of how far I've fallen short of, of living up to the sonship that you've tasked me with. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to dad. If this isn't the gospel in one sentence, I don't know what is. If this isn't like material for you to sit in and actually like dwell on, ask questions about what it might mean for you while he was still a long way off. <laughs> but we've talked about Carl, Carl Bart before. The idea of grace, we're all a long way off. Like, I hope we don't buy into the myth that some are a long way off. We're all a long way off. We're all making it up as we go. We're all like falling short of the perception that we're, we're hoping to uphold. How people see us and who we actually are, there's a delta between, and we're all trying to mine that gap appropriately. But in the end, if we're honest, we're a long way off. I'm a long way off as a dad. I'm a long way off as your pastor. I'm a long way off as a man. I'm a long way off as a follower of Jesus. I know for me, heaven forbid I project onto you, I'm a long way off. We are a long way off. But with that said, his father saw him, his father sees you and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, this is the script he wrote earlier when he was sitting in the pig pen. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring 
like, it's so amazing to me, this text. I didn't mean to detour all these different directions right now, so I apologize, but I read this, and I'm like, isn't the Bible beautiful? When you get past, like, that sense of where you need to, like, abide by it all, like, literal black and white, and you go to that place where it's like, this speaks into you and me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So for me, like, when I read this, that's what it is. I'm not defending any tradition. I'm not defending any religion. I'm reading this, and it's so freaking beautiful. The father said to his servants, completely dismissing his son's script. The son went home with the script in hand, saying, this is why... Um, don't call me a son, I'm not worthy of that anymore, but I'd like to come home all the same. And he gives him this script and the father's like, hey, hey, to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. But don't just put the robe, also bring the ring and shoes on his feet. We're not going to give him bread and water, we're also going to bring the fatted calf and we're going to kill it and let us eat. Let us celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost a moment ago, but he's been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother, not the prodigal boy who's in the pig pen, his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the commotion, he heard the celebration, he heard that there was good tidings being brought. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father saying, look, I mean, these many years I've served you, served you. I've done the right things. I've minded my P's and my Q's. I've been that guy who's done the work when you asked all of us brothers to do it. I've showed up when nobody else did. I gave when nobody else gave. I went the extra mile where everybody else pulled up short. Let's not get it twisted right now. All these years that I have been your eldest son, all these years that have been a part of your life, all these years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat. You never once like took any kind of sacrifice on for me to cause a celebration that you're putting on for him. Why? You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The people who have said, like, it's worth staying at home. The people who have been in my corner and saying, don't depart from the path that you are on. <laughs> Bible is not boring, right? Do you feel like the spirit of it, the text, like when it comes alive and you actually hear for what it is, not something regurgitated, you don't have to need sword drills here. You know, sword drill. anybody else grow up on the sword drills? Thank you, Heather. The idea where you have to like memorize scripture and you all of a sudden, it's, it's weird. I won't bring it up again. It won't happen again. But like the Bible is alive and well and it moves and it cuts between bone and marrow and it does some beautiful things when you actually take into consideration the story Jesus is trying to tell right now. This older brother, he minded the P's and Q's. He stayed within the lines. He did not do anything absurd. 
He, he, he took seriously what his dad asked of him. And now he's pissed. Because younger boy, this other guy, didn't do any of that. This other guy actually said, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get what you have to give. And I'm going to book it out of here. And now you're throwing a party for that guy right there that wanted you dead back then? Like, make it make sense. It doesn't make sense. I'm not happy about this. I've been by your side the whole way through. All the time. My friends were with you all the way through. We were here in your corner all the way through. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say, but when my brother came home, he says, when this son of yours, because he saw what his brother did, and he saw how his brother caused harm, he saw the pain that he inflicted. He said, when this son of yours, not my baby brother, came home, the same one who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened freaking calf for him? What? And the dad in response says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. The dad reports that um, at one point in the story, my dad, my son, my beloved son, the one whose diapers I changed, the one who I remember the first time he started to laugh. I definitely remember the first time he started to walk. I remember when he moved in a direction that was actually congruent with, not with my desires, but his own. This son... My boy is lost. That's what the father reported thousands of years ago. He said, my boy is lost. That's what the father reported in 2015. When the Charlotte police put out an a, a image of this man, of Dylan Roof, the person who called in on that tip line was a dad who literally said these words, my son is lost. My son has gone missing. That's him. Dad also followed up with, here's the car you're going to want to be looking for. It's pretty nondescript, so let me bring you some further clarification. There's probably going to be a Confederate flag or three hanging in the back be a bumper sticker version or in some kind of backseat paraphernalia. That's my son. You should also know Charlotte police. He's probably carrying a 45. Why do I know that? Because I bought it for him on his 21st birthday as a way of celebrating his new maturation into adulthood. But the gift that I went out to give him My son is lost. That is my boy. You should definitely get him. Oh, but that's also my son. 
you know the story. Dylan Roof, he goes into this small church and he walks inside and the people inside welcome him with open arms. This wayward son, this boy who took his father's good gifts, this boy who believed like he was doing the right thing, this boy who set off on his own kind of path eight years ago from now. He went into that church and he was welcomed by that church. They gave him a spare study guide. They offered him an extra Bible. They brought him in into the fold. And they said like, hey, if you're here to pursue God, this is verbatim, quote, let us be the people who introduce you to God. We are so glad you are here. They opened up the gospel of Mark. And after they started to go into the gospel of Mark, they said a moment of like, can we just sit down and pray together as one family, as carers of the Imago Dei, children of God. And when they did, they had no idea that this newcomer that they had gone the extra miles were introduced to the reality of God, the, the person they welcomed in with warm arms and hospitality that we don't understand. Those people, they had no idea that in his knapsack, he was carrying weaponry. He was carrying 88 bullets, a symbol that is, you know, consistent with Hail Hitler. They had no idea that this young, skinny, white boy from the sticks who stumbled through the doors of their church was coming to inflict all kinds of harm. They didn't know about the manifesto. They didn't know about the race war he was trying to set up. They didn't know any of that. They just saw a young boy who came into them. They wanted to welcome him in. They brought him in. This wayward child, the prodigal son, father called in. And then he opens fire. And the wayward boy who stumbled into that church, he walked out a little bit more lost that next day. Thanks to that father who called in to the Charlotte police and said, that is my child. Here is where he is. Do something about it. He was taken into custody. I don't know if you guys remember it, but um, I wrote it down a couple of years ago when, when this was all going down. But when the bail bond moment happened, they brought him in before the magistrates, the powers that be in Charlotte, and they said like, okay, so how do we go about this moment that we are in? And the judge, he said to each of the family members who were slain, he said like, if anybody, if, if anybody wants to say anything, now is the time to say it. This man who had wreaked havoc against innocent people who had done nothing to him but warmth, Matter of fact, Dylan Roof, if you read like the aftermath of it, he says, I actually almost second guessed what I set out to do because they were so freaking hospitable. I didn't expect that kind of warmth. It made me second guess what I should do. Wayward son, pig pen life. The bail bond happens and it's kind of like this customary thing that just nobody's really thinking much about it. But there's this young lady named Nadine Collier I think she says Collier, actually. I don't know why I said Collier. I think I've been listening to too many audiobooks. That's probably the result of that. It's funny when you listen to her story because she talks about how I stepped into that courtroom. My mom had been killed by this monster. And I didn't want to say a thing. 
I didn't want to say anything at all. I figured I'll be a witness. I'll be eyes. I'll be ears. I'm not a mouthpiece. So in this moment, she sits in the back of the courtroom. But the judge carefully reads each of the victims' names one by one, takes time to and says, if anybody wants to stand up in front of Myra's family and say, this is who she was, this is what she should know, this is what you, Dylan Roof, did to her. She heard her mom's name, Estel, called out by the judge. And she said, you know, um, I, 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 I perched up in the back with no intention of saying anything, but all of a sudden, and I, don't, I hope we don't miss this, all of a sudden there was some kind of like outside force. There was something I don't know how to articulate. There was something that moved me from the back pew to the front pew, something that said like, you need to open your mouth. And so Nadine got on her feet and she started walking forward. And she got to the front and she said, I would like to say something. She gets to the, the stand where the judge says, like, what is it that you would like to say? And she is so flabbergasted and shocked and overwhelmed by the moment at hand. He, he, the judge actually says, what's your name? And she, she's like, uh, she didn't have an answer. That's how overwhelmed she was. But then in that moment, the judge says to her, he says, uh, you can look at me. I'll communicate with you. You don't have to look at him. Let's have this moment together. Let's, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm in your corner. And Dean opens her mouth and he says, thank, she says, thank you, judge. But then she pivots with her body towards Dylan Roof. Close your eyes. Picture that scene. As she's, in her words, as she's walking towards that moment, she hears her slain mother saying, don't be a smart ass. Like, don't be that girl who always drove me crazy with your incendiary humor and your stubbornness. Like, don't run your mouth. Be mindful of where you are. And she said, um, what I knew what I had to do when I got to that stand inside of that moment was, I need to be true to my mom's words. And all my mom's words were governed by the gospel. And she steps up. She hears the judge giving her permission to look away from Dylan and onto only him, but instead she looks at Dylan. And she says this, aha. I want everyone to know. Dylan, I want you to know that I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I'll never get to talk to my mom again. I'll never get to hold my mom again, but I still, I forgive you. And I have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of different people. But God forgives you. I forgive you. Moments after, there's a pastor in the back of the room who also was not intending to say anything at all, but he heard his, sister, or his wife's name called out from the judge, and he decides, like, I, I need to say something. He's so moved by what Nadine just offered up. He goes to the front of the room, and while uh, this Reverend Thompson goes to the front, he says this. He goes, you just heard 
Nadine had to say, you heard the harsh truth that like in spite of like the monster that you have become, in spite of all the things that you have done, I'm a pastor of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that I'm still going to forgive you. I'm still going to give grace to you. I'm still going to extend the mercy to you that you failed to extend to my people. You know what's interesting? I, part of the impetus behind this message, even while I'm going to this place right now, is I just finished the book, Grace Will Lead Us Home. And it's this beautiful, powerful book that moves me to tears when I talk about it. But it's all about this church, these people who had to struggle towards forgiveness and of recognizing that uh, healing doesn't happen with the flip of a switch. It actually takes the incremental steps of work and honesty, and it's not easy, but grace will lead us home. These, this pastor here, Pastor Thompson, daughter Nadine, and so many others in that room, they saw this prodigal son who was living in the pig pen, who got lost in his own kind of story and said, I see the sh- there's kid. I see the crap you're in. That's not all you are, though. Oh, my gosh. I got to tell you guys right now. I'm going to go off script, and I'm going to close this out. As somebody in recovery, it's amazing to me that one of the most encouraging texts that I never thought I would find to be encouraging, because I wrote a senior paper at a seminary about it, but... We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all living inside of, of, of sin that falls short. I, I wrote back to that text right there from Paul. I said, Paul, please you need to understand, we were born with original blessing, not original curse. But now that I'm a work in progress, pardon my dust, you come to a place and go like, it is so freaking liberating and beautiful to go. We're all the mess. We're all pig pen living prodigals. And if we actually have that humility to root ourselves inside of that reality, like Reverend Thompson did, like Nadine did, like so many in that particular church community did, inside of the, in the aftermath of tragedy that we will never understand, and say that despite the monstrosity, no, it's not right. Older brother is right. Like there should be some kind of repentant act. Like there should be, in the Jewish lifestyle, there was a thing called kasaza, which is like if there's a repentant somebody, a prodigal or otherwise, who comes back home, wants to be reintegrated inside of the life of the community, you go, there's a process here. You put sackcloth on him. You put ashes on him. You, you name him as the disgrace that he actually is. You don't put a robe. You don't put a ring. You don't actually throw the fatted calf onto the grill. Like you don't go, what are we doing right now? It doesn't feel right, but Jesus is constantly after something that is bigger than right. And that thing that underrides all the things is to recognize that we are all a long ways off, not quite where we want to be in the far country. Some of us are very aware of the pig pens that we live in. Some of us are not. But there is a fatted calf on the grill for you still. There is a robe, there is a ring. It's the ridiculous, absurd nature of grace that tells the whole story of good news. If you don't have grace, you don't have good news. Carl Bart, 
Bill, I didn't mean to lock eyes with you, but I'm just thinking about, but Carl Barth talks about how grace is not something that just pardons you, it empowers you. And as for me, pardon my dust, it's not just like a thank you, it's an empowerment. Now I get to live in a way that says, I'm going to pardon your dust the same way that you pardon my dust. If you didn't pardon my dust, I'm still going to pardon your dust because that's what grace does. It is the best news available. Dr. Reverend Otis Moss III, he writes about spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. Grace is the thing that underscores each of these lessons. And my prayer for us as a community, for you individually or you as a family or whatever it might be, is that you might find a little bit of space this upcoming week to sit down and go like, man, I'm still here, grace. My kids still smile, grace. Wiz hasn't fallen asleep, grace. <laughs> all, of <it> is, <laughs> all of it is grace. Like grace, grace, grace. Brennan Manning, grace, all is grace. Pray with me. Jesus, God, you are good. God, as we think about all the different prodigal stories that are happening in our lives, that are happening through us, that are happening to us, younger brothers that have gone amiss, younger sisters that have gone amiss, younger cousins that are gone missing. Help us to have the humility and the humanity to recognize that we're all doing the best that we can with the information that we have. And we're all making a hot mess of everything as we go about it. Jesus, you are the clarification, the explicit note of grace. And that is the good news. That's what we hang our hat on. That's why we get out of bed in the morning. Jesus, you are the good news of grace. And all God's children say with grateful hearts, amen. If you're new to our community, um, one thing that we do every week has this rhythm. Um, it's a rhythm that the global church participates. We take, in, take part in communion together. And if you're like me and we get used to this weekly rhythm, sometimes it just becomes a routine. And I just want to remind us the story of what we're doing today. So as Jesus was staring down his betrayal, he sat down and he shared a meal with his community, with his friends. He picked up the bread and he broke it. Broke it like so many of our relationships with others, and with ourselves. And Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in this being the breaking and the sharing. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that same moment, Jesus picked up the cup in the same way, this cup filled with the fruit of the vine a vine that links individual pieces fruit together to come together and make something bigger and beautiful and rich and full. Jesus poured it out and said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this act of communion that we do together every week, it's small, but it's an important moment to practice abundance, to practice reconciliation, to practice grace. It's an opportunity to do something irregular, to come together as a group of people, to pause and be mindful in the moment of 
a simple action that causes wide ripples into our week. And we do this every week because it's something that we need to continue to come back to, that this isn't just a one and done moment of grace, that this is a a ritual to practice a, a whole lifestyle of grace. So again, if you're new here, we'll have um, people standing here at the station. Um, We have gluten-free bread, and you can take a piece of it, dip it in the cup, um, and then make your way back to your seat. Come down the center aisle and make your way back to the seat through that way. So again, this is a small practice with big implications. The table is set, and beloved, there's a seat saved for you. If you'll please stand and say the prayer that Jesus taught us, the words will be on the screen. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I had this meeting over lunch yesterday with one of my Timberwolves guys who recently got a new contract, and that's my fault, not yours. You can sit down for a moment, and then I'll ask you to stand in the next second, but um, it was fascinating because we're celebrating this new contract, and it's great, and it's awesome. I love you. Happy for you. You earned it, all of it. 100 years from now, you probably won't be remembered. And I said remembered at that time. It wasn't remembered, like I just told you. Like it was remembered. And I said, like, uh, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm happy for you. This is awesome. Celebrations all around. You probably won't be remembered. You can go all out, have the year of your life. Probably won't be remembered. What a gift it is to be alive. When you start to recognize that you are a blade of grass, that you are a a thing that is fleeting here now, but not tomorrow, brief, but has weight. What a gift it is to go, I'm gonna get out of bed tomorrow though, and I've been given this life. Hardships, goodness, gifts, the gory nature of it all, what a gift it is to face another day. Grace is the word you're looking for. It's all grace. (laughs) It is all grace. As long as I'm a pastor of this church, that's the only thing I want you to hear from me. It is all grace. Grace. It's grace. It's a gift. I didn't deserve it. Neither did you. It's grace. Why am I getting emotional, Lauren? This is why we do church on Sundays. Sunday is like emotionally dry day. Wednesday is like I'm crying all the time. But like it is grace. Don't, it's grace. You got somebody to spend this life with, grace. You have a job you get to go to, grace. You got food on your table, grace. There is breath in your lungs, grace. You have another chance at life, grace. You have another chance of getting back on your feet, grace. (laughs) We're all those prodigals far off. Nobody's exempt from that. But grace will lead us home. Standing in that reality is I ask you to hear the words from God to you right now. 
If you do me a favor and just close your eyes and hold out your hands and stand as the children of God that you are and hear these words from the heart of God to you. No matter who you are, what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you have stayed, Please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you as is right now are celebrated and seen. You are a child of God and beloved, you belong. You belong. Grace, grace, grace. We'll see you next Wednesday, not Sunday at the table. Go in peace, friends.